Right. Our scripture reading is going to be from Revelation 10, starting in verse 1. Then I saw another mighty angel coming down from heaven. He was robed in a cloud with a rainbow above his head. His face was like the sun, and his legs were like fiery pillars. He was holding a little scroll, which they opened in his hand. He planted his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land. And he gave a loud shout like the roar of a lion. When he shouted, the voices of the seven thunders spoke. And when the seven thunders spoke, I was about to write. But I heard a voice from heaven say, seal up what the seven thunders have said and do not write it down. Then the angel I had seen standing on the sea and on the land raised his right hand to heaven. And he swore by him who lives forever and ever and who created the heavens and all that is in them and the earth and all that is in it and the sea and all that is in it and said, there will be no more delay. But in the days when the seventh angel is about to send his trumpet, the mystery of God will be accomplished just as he uh, announced to his servants and prophets. Then the voice that I had heard from the heavens spoke to me once more, go take the scroll that lies open in the hand of the angel who is standing on the sea and on the land. So I went to the angel and asked him to give me the little scroll. He said to me, take it and eat it. It will turn your stomach sour, but in your mouth it will be sweet as honey. I took the little scroll from the angel's hand and ate it. It tasted as sweet as honey in my mouth, but when I had eaten it, my stomach turned sour. And then I was told, you must prophesy again about the many peoples, nations, languages, and kings. This word of God. If you've been with us, um, or if you're new and joining us, we've been going through the book of Revelation. And we're in sort of this long section between chapters 8 and 11, um, where, where Jesus is giving John, who's on this island, okay, he's giving him a vision. Okay, and his vision, as we just read, you'll notice, has, has got all kinds of strange symbols. And um, in this case, there's, there's a scroll that he eats. And we're going to un- unpack all of that in a little bit. Um, but before we do that, um, I'm sure if you've been watching the news over the last few years, and, and maybe... <laughs> It's not fair just to say the last two years, but uh, maybe for, for whenever we read the news or watch the news or see the news on our phones or however we get the news, sometimes in my experience, it's less encouraging and more discouraging. Um, it seems right now that all, all we hear about is the gas prices are going up and up and the news bits about the war in Ukraine and, and all kinds of fears about the stock market and what's going, what's going on in the world. It can feel overwhelming and intense. The good news is, is that the last few weeks have been about judgment and calamity. Tonight, the message in the actual text is actually an encouraging one. So after a lot of weeks of discouragement, we get a little bit of encouragement here, and that is exciting. The main idea of this passage, and the big thing that I think we're going to look at, is that no matter how dark it might get, no matter how grim the world may become, We know who is in charge. We know that Jesus Christ is sovereign over every molecule in existence. And not only so, but the very presence of God dwells with us. I'm going to go back a minute before we move forward. Back in the book of Deuteronomy, 
Moses was promising something to God, and God was telling him something to do, namely that God would make his name dwell in a specific place uh, once they've inhabited Canaan. Okay, so we're, we're going back a little bit here. And we can assume that the tabernacle at the time uh, existed in Gilgal, which you can read about in Joshua 4. Uh, but th- what the Israelite people would do is that they would stop and they would set up a new tabernacle wherever they would go. They'd dwell there for a while until they would go to the next place. Here at Shiloh, is just where we're going to, I'm going to briefly stop. It's a little pit stop before we get to Revelation. Um, God is establishing his name to dwell in a specific place for the very first time. I'm going to read from Deuteronomy. Uh, this is verse 12. Uh, excuse me, this is Jeremiah 7, verse 12. It says, Go to my place in Shiloh, where I made my name dwell at first, and see what I did to it because of the evil people, my, or of the evil of my people Israel. So what does that mean? What does it mean that God would dwell in this place, the specific place? What is the significance of this idea? I don't think it was what the people at the time thought it was going to mean. If you were a normal pagan person um, in, a, in a pagan world, you'd imagine that God works somehow like this. Um, you have a God that was ruling over a place, but if you travel to a new place, that God wouldn't come with you. There'd be a new God who ruled over that place. And so their vision for the world was that there were many gods who ruled in many different ways in different spaces. Um, so people would have assumed that Yahweh, who is going to be dwelling in this place, um, was sort of on his home turf, right? This is his place that he is setting. This is where he is going to be. This is going to be where God will dwell, which is sort of right, except that God is in all places, that God is one, that Yahweh is indeed dwelling in all the earth. There's not a place he doesn't inhabit, not a space he doesn't fill up. No time or space can contain him. In fact, it's later when Solomon builds the temple where his name would dwell for a time, Solomon confesses this. This is such a profound moment. Solomon says, O Lord, the heaven in the highest heaven cannot contain you. How much less this place I have built for you. Not even the highest heaven can contain God. This is a staggering thought that God is upholding every proton, neutron, electron, every molecule that spins in your body. Why? Because Jesus speaks a word and makes it so. You know, the, the difference um, in, in understanding, I was, I was thinking about this, earth size in comparison uh, to our solar system is, is pretty small, right? It's this, it's this little speck when you compare it to the rest of our solar system. And the solar system, in comparison to the galaxy that we inhabit, if you look at the difference, is, is, is a massive difference as well. It'd be, it'd be the, uh, the size between the land mass of the United States and a single penny. Try to wrap your mind around how big that actually is, that we are that small. And it gets kind of crazier when you start to really think about it. Astrophysicists uh, estimate there are somewhere between 100 billion and 200 billion galaxies in the universe. Not planets, right? Not solar systems, but galaxies. That is a massive, mind-bending reality. And that's just their estimate. Who knows? Now, these are big numbers to throw around, so just stop and consider this. To consider how big 100 billion is, just the number in and of itself, 
If you had $1 million, like crisp dollar bills stacked, that would reach about 3.3 feet, and I'm not good at math, but about the size of a wooden chair. Um, If you had 1 billion crisp $100 bills, it would be 0.63 miles stacked on top of each other. That's taller than the world's tallest building, and that's just 1 billion. Imagine, if you can, 100 to 200 billion galaxies. There was a new galaxy that was actually discovered. I was reading about this last week. Um, I'm probably going to butcher the name of it. Um, but it was, it starts with an A. I, I, no, I didn't even write it down. I can't even remember it. But the point is this. This new galaxy they discovered um, is 100 times the size of the Milky Way galaxy, the galaxy that we are in. You can imagine if there are hundreds of billions of these galaxies that it just, your brain just starts to break at some point. And they discovered this thing, and I get, look, this is scientific, and I, I'm, I don't really fully understand all of this, but somehow they discovered in primordial slime that like there's this stuff called the cosmic web, which is essentially the very fabric of what holds everything together. Really what's happening is these scientists are trying to describe God, right? That all these things hold together, all of these galaxies, all of this incredible uh, existence in the universe is all held together somehow. Yet, in all of this size, right, in all this just massive, mind-bending size, the highest heaven cannot even contain God, according to Solomon. Why? Because this is what God has said and made. The same God who spoke life into existence promises also to dwell in a place. And this is where God meets his people. And as we know, eventually God will not only dwell in a, in a tabernacle, but God will come in the form, uh, it will send the son Jesus to come live a perfect life, die on a cross on our behalf, right? This, this, the incarnation, God becoming man, fully human, yet fully divine. So we have these two big ideas, okay? Where am I going with all this? We're in Revelation. We've got God's sovereign over all things throughout all of history, over all of creation, all of the universe, this massive, massive universe. And yet God also dwelt among us and is near to us. How do we know God is sovereign? And, and first of all, what does that even mean? What does the word sovereign, what does this even mean? You know, all kinds of questions come up when I think about sovereign. I, I think, does it mean that God is this puppet master controlling every little thing that we do, that we're just sort of actors in a, in a play of a script that's already written? Does it mean that God causes every good and evil thing to happen? Does it mean that God cannot change his mind? Like, what does it mean for God to ultimately be sovereign? Well, let's take a look briefly at what the scriptures say. I'm going to read just a few scriptures that will sort of paint this picture of what I'm talking about when I talk about the sovereignty of God. We have in uh, the Psalm 147, verse 8, it says, He covers the heavens with clouds. He prepares rain for the earth. He makes grass grow in the hills. He gives beasts their food to the young ravens that cry. He makes peace in your borders. He fills you with the finest of wheat. He sends out his command to the earth. His word runs swiftly. Job 26, 7 says, He stretches out the north over empty space. He hangs the earth on nothing. 
He wraps up the waters in his clouds, and the clouds do not burst under them. He obscures the face of the full moon. He spreads the cloud over it. Behold, these are the fringes of his ways, and how faint a word we hear of him, but his mighty thunder, who can understand? Right? We have these descriptions, this poetry about how God is over all of the earth and nature and, and, and all of weather patterns and the moon and whether the moon is full or not full and gravity. Or consider verses that we see throughout the scriptures about God's sovereignty over the lives and plans that we make. In Proverbs 20, it says, a man's steps are from the Lord. How can they, how, how then can man understand his way? Or in Proverbs 19, it says, many are the plans in the mind of a man, but it is purpose of the Lord that will stand. Or maybe you're familiar with James 4, verses 13. Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow, we will go into such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. The scriptures even talk about um, how God is sovereign, not just over the beginning of life, but also to the end of life. In Deuteronomy 32, it says, See now that I, even I, am he, that there is no God beside me. I kill and make alive. I wound and heal, and there is no one who can deliver out of my hand. Or Psalm 139, 16 says, Your eye saw me as an unformed substance. This is before I was even born. In your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there were none of them. So even before we were born, he knew the days written for us. God is sovereign over everything. Now, this is where it gets even a little bit more tricky. What about over mankind? What about over us? Is God sovereign over our specific will? This is a really difficult question to wrestle with. I would consider this text in Genesis 6. It says, then God said to him, this is Abimelech, in the dream, yes, I know that you have done this in, your, in the integrity of your heart, and it was I who kept you from sinning against me. Therefore, I did not let you touch her. You see, in this moment, we see God direct decision-making of Abimelech and restraining him from having an immoral sexual relationship with this woman. So Sarah, who's Abraham's wife. So God intervenes on behalf to protect Sarah. Some argue that God can't do that. That he can't intrude on the human will and prevent a free moral person from committing abuse or atrocity. Yet we see from a story that God can prevent someone against sinning whenever he chooses. Proverbs 21.1 says, The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever it will. That even kings and tyrants and leaders, that God can change the heart of those who are in charge and move them and again, this points to us in the power of what prayer can do in, in our world, especially in uh, troubled times. So why do we bring this up today? Why am I talking about God's sovereignty? Why, do I, why am I trying to paint this picture and help us understand the bigness of God and his sovereignty? I think it's because this is what Revelation 10 is all about. Revelation 10 is about the sovereignty of God over nations and people and events on heaven and earth. So let's dive into it. We'll break it down. There's a few cool things, and then I'll, I'll, I'll land it home 
with how this, what this means for us today. Who is the mighty angel in Revelation 10? This is the first question that we face from the text. It says the angel is wrapped in the cloud. In the Old Testament, clouds are often a vehicle by which God makes an appearance. Um, it says there was a rainbow over his head. What is the rainbow over his head? Probably an allusion to Ezekiel 1, 26, where God is described in similar terms. Um, there's another reference in Revelation to rainbow in uh, Revelation 4, 3, where God is pictured on a throne surrounded by a rainbow. So we're seeing this theme come up more than once throughout the book of Revelation. Um, we also read that his face was like the sun. This is a description of the risen Jesus in Revelation 1, 16. Uh, his legs were like pillars of fire. Okay, this points back uh, to Revelation 1, 15, the description of the risen and glorified Jesus. And then one other observation is that in verse 3, his voice is compared to a roaring lion. You'll recall that Jesus is, re- is compared to a lion in Revelation 5. So it appears, based on those five pieces of evidence and, and sort of the description of the text, that the angel here is referring to Christ. Remember, this vision is meant to be symbolic. So it's a little bit weird because you have Jesus who's sharing this vision with John, but he's speaking of himself. So it would be weird if he was like, and there is me, right? But instead, he gives this symbolic portrayal of an angel, which is a representative of Christ. Maybe is the best way to phrase it. He's speaking of that of the risen Christ. And then we see in Revelation 10.3, he called out a loud voice, the seven thunders sounded. Now, this I had a lot of fun studying this. Um, what are the seven thunders and why? This is what I think is cool. Why is John prohibited from writing down in Revelation their content. Like, it, when you read this, it's kind of weird, right? He, he's getting this vision, and then he's like, I saw the seven thunders, but I couldn't, I couldn't write it down. I'm not allowed to write it down. It was too much to even put it into words. Now, what are the seven thunders? Well, we don't know because God chose for us not to know. Um, it's weird that in a book called Revelation that's supposed to, to reveal things to us, in this moment, we have a, a demand for secrecy, which is sort of a weird twist. But the presence of the, okay, this is, I'm going to nerd out a little bit, okay? The presence of the definite article in the Greek um, implies that these seven thunders may actually be referring to something that John's audience may, ha- may have recollect or understand because of their specific context. So it may be something that they would know of that maybe we don't quite have that understanding. Um, in other words, it may have meant something to the original readers that we don't quite know. But why the command not to write it down? That's the real mystery here. And we can't be certain of the answer, but there's a couple, there's a couple possible things. One, this may be God's way of telling John that some things in the future are not for us to know. That there are some things that are meant to be kept secret. And in, in a way, maybe God is trying to tell us to live in complete dependence of him. Especially when we feel ignorant or information is lacking. God knows far more about the future. And perhaps there are reasons why we don't know or we're not ready to know or whatever that might be. Now, this can be hard. I mean, have you ever wanted to know something? Maybe there, there was something going on at work and you really wanted to know the juicy details and what was going on. There was something that you just really badly wanted to know. I, I have something that I desperately want to know, but I can't know. My wife and I are expecting a baby in August. We're very excited, but I don't know the gender, and Betsy won't let me find out. 
This is the fourth baby. And I thought by the fourth one, she'd be like, okay, you know, you do a lot of work too. Um, you can know the gender. But we had our sonogram yesterday, and I begged her to let me find out, and she said no. And she's the boss, so. I still don't know the gender of our baby, even though I, I will be surprised. It's always fun when we're surprised. But I want to know. I'm not going to lie. Um, I even tried to convince her that how about like they put it in an envelope and only I'll read it and I won't tell you, like I won't give it away. And she's like, she doesn't go for that. Um, I tried everything. There are things we want to know that only God knows. And the truth is, there's good reason for that. Uh, Deuteronomy 29.9 says, or 29.29 says, the secret things belong to the Lord our God. But the things that are revealed belong to us and our children forever. There are things that are meant to be revealed, and there are things that are meant to be withheld. It's also possible uh, another interpretation of why he didn't write it down could be similar to what the Apostle Paul experienced in 2 Corinthians 12, where he describes his translation to the third heaven. And he says he heard things which cannot be told, which man may not utter. In other words, some things are so extraordinary and overwhelming and glorious that is not for us to know, at least for now. Maybe one day. But for now, it's almost too much, too overwhelming. Now, there are three spheres that we see in this passage. There's heaven, earth, and the sea, which is sort of just encompassing all the things that God has made. There's no place where God's sovereignty doesn't exist, and there's no place where his word doesn't apply. God created heaven. He created earth. He created all that is within so from the helix of the DNA to the cosmic web to galaxies 100 times bigger than our Milky Way galaxy, God is sovereign over all of it. Now this mighty angel, okay, that we're referring to, which we says representative of Christ, um, swears an oath by God that there would be no more delay, but that in the days of the trumpet call to be sounded by the seventh angel, the mystery of God would be fulfilled. Now, this is where the encouragement comes, right? We've, we've spent weeks and weeks hearing about the judgment, hearing about calamity, hearing about disaster, hearing about um, what is going to happen to those who are idolaters and who are persecuting Christians and all this stuff in the previous weeks. And now we get this encouragement. The word fulfilled in verse 7 is a reminder to us that there is no doubt about what God's purposes are going to come to pass. That God's purposes will indeed come to pass. That nothing can stop it. It means do not be afraid. Do not despair. Do not grow weary. Uh, don't get eaten up with anxiety. Because in the end, we know who wins. And we know that all these things will come to their ultimate consummation. There's no terrorist attack. No nuclear bombs. No corruption in government. No sex scandal. No military power or economic collapse that will stand in the way of God's promises being fulfilled. This is an encouraging reality for all of us. So, with that, the instructions given to John and the angel um, are actually patterned after Ezekiel's experience where he too was commanded to eat the scroll. So this is in Ezekiel's 2 through 3, which is also a similar genre of apocalyptic literature. And so this is the weird, another weird part of the story. Now he's given this scroll to eat. Why would he eat a scroll? The eating of the scroll, similar to what happens in Ezekiel, uh, symbolizes the embodying the truth of the message. It's, it's like you are literally going to eat it so that it gets within you. 
The point is, it's not merely enough to hold a Bible in your hand or post an Instagram picture with your Bible and a cup of coffee or uh, maybe a politician taking a picture with a Bible in front of a church. Like, that's not enough. It has to actually get within you to digest it, to get to our innermost being so that uh, we see Jeremiah 15, your words were found, I ate them, and your words became to me a joy and the delight of my heart. It has to really get within us. But there's another little twist, right? It's not just the joy that comes from the scroll. There is that. But there's also the bitterness. We have here a bitter sweet type situation. Right? The scroll makes our stomachs turn sour. What this is one of the hardest parts I found to interpret of this text. Why is there both bitterness but also sweetness? Generally, uh, there's been two suggestions as to why there's both. Um, one is that although salvation is certain for the people of God, the book contains prophecy of harsh persecution, which we've read about, um, and that many will suffer at the hands of Satan and the beasts before e- entering the kingdom of heaven. There's, there's sort of that prediction. Many people have suggested that's why. Another, which I think uh, maybe is more convincing, is that the book is bitter because it contains prophecy of the judgments which will soon fall upon unbelievers. And so you have John who's like feeling this like sadness, like he's, he's mourning over what is going to happen to hundreds and millions of people, right? He's feeling this just almost this sort of sadness in this moment. But it also is a reminder that like the Christian life, man, we are told by Jesus himself that in this world we will have trouble, right? There is going to be moments of sadness and grief and mourning, There will be times of persecution and suffering. It even says that maybe we will be hated for what we believe. But there's also the joy that even in the midst of suffering, we can hang on to. Here's the truth. God knows what is going to happen. And he communicates this to John through this revelation, who then turn communicates it to us by using this term prophecy. What is prophecy? Prophecy is the believer's comfort and assurance that God controls the present and the future and that we can rest comfortably knowing that he is in charge of it all. Uh, This morning, I had a scary moment. I was in the kitchen with my wife. We were making breakfast, kind of doing the chaotic morning shuffle, trying to get our kids to school. And it's always just like, you know, we're we're just getting breakfast ready and we're distracted and our youngest, Emma, she's a little over a year old, she's learned how to walk, which is fun, but also she gets into everything. But she's also learned how to crawl out of her, um, I'm blanking on what it's called, the baby seat they sit in when they eat. High chair, thank you. Had a total just brain melt there. She's sitting in her high chair. She's starting to crawl out of it, and she leans on the part where you kind of can unhook the front latch, and she falls out of her high chair, does a full twist, and lands on her head falls to the ground, and like mama bear instincts kicked in. My wife rushes over. I'm just like, I just froze. I'm like, what do I do? Um, she grabs Emma, pulls her in her arm, and then a really scary thing happened. Her eyes closed, and she was still breathing, but it was almost as if she passed out for a second. It was like really scary, and I'm like, do we call 911? What do we do? This could be really bad. Long story short, we took her to the doctor, and we think she's going to be just fine. Uh, it was a scary moment. We've been monitoring her all day, but uh, in that moment, you know, I, I don't think sometimes you realize the amount of 
what's the word, love. Like how big your love is for a child, like my child, until a moment like that, where like in a moment I'm so concerned that she's, I don't know if she's got a brain bleed or whatever it might be, like that something could be wrong and that uh, we may have to take her to the hospital. Like in that moment, just so much emotion packed into this little moment. And I remember just thinking like, man, there are so many people who have lost loved ones for, for whatever reason that might be. And I can't imagine the pain and the suffering that that, that uh, may take on a person because, man, this world that we live in, you can have news, you can get a phone call, and your life can change in a second. And this was, a, uh, I remember receiving a phone call when I was in college about one of my friends who had overdosed and was in the hospital, like, fighting for his life. And it was like just one of those moments I was like, man, life is so fragile. And I think sometimes we sort of live under the impression of this invincibility where we just think we can go through life and, and things are, we sort of compartmentalize that, that emotion. But this morning I felt it in a different way. I felt my mortality. I felt, I felt this feeling of like, God, I really hope that my kids and my wife outlive me. You know, I want them, I don't want that, I just, that, that feeling of having to, um, experience that grief just seems so overwhelming to me. But this is where I think the beauty of God's sovereignty is such a comforting thing. Because in this life, there will be experiences where we experience death, where we experience the loss of a loved one who died too soon, where we lose someone to whatever it might be. And there are these moments where we're just like, why God, why? You want to cry out and just say, why would this happen? Why would you allow this to happen. This is the great tension of God's sovereignty. People around you whom you love may not be with you tomorrow. We're not promised tomorrow. Nothing is promised in that sense. But God's sovereignty and God himself is our only hope, which kind of seems counterintuitive because if God's sovereign, why would he allow bad things to happen to good people? This is a question Humanity and Christians have been wrestling uh, since the beginning of time. Genesis gives us a clue. 50.20 says, As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to bring out this present result to preserve many people alive. And what this isn't, this isn't saying, it's not this pithy statement saying everything happens for a reason or um, that, uh, you know, you see these kind of bumper sticker sayings that, that you know, God will, make a, will uh, open a window when he closes a door or anything like that. Like, I legitimately think that sometimes God doesn't open a window and he allows the house to collapse. That's probably a more biblical view. But the truth is, um, there's something powerful and profound about the reality that we will indeed face times of tribulation and suffering in this world. And it's what the Apostle Paul says when he says, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. It's the weight of glory, the hope of heaven, the the bigness of God that in the midst of all of it, in the midst of the pain, the joys, the highs, and the lows, that God is sovereign over it all. This truth gives us hope and encouragement in the life to come. There are times where I think that God has to strip us of our illusion of control in order to show us the reality that we need him 
every hour. That we need to be dependent and trust in him, even when it's difficult. In closing, you may remember the story. I have a picture here. Uh, this is the Greek mythology. This is Atlas, okay? A depiction of Atlas. Um, he and his brother were sided with the Titans in the war against the pantheon of the Greek gods. And when the Titans were defeated, many of them uh, were confined to Tartarus. But Zeus condemned Atlas to stand on the western edge of Gaia, which is the earth, and to hold up the sky on his shoulders to prevent the two from resuming their embrace. It's a long story. But a common misconception today is that Atlas was forced to hold the earth on his shoulders. Um, classical art shows Atlas actually holding celestial spears, not a globe. So take that depiction with a grain of salt. Um, but if you notice this picture, you can see the depiction of blood running down his chest. You can see the, how difficult it is to hold this, this globe or whatever he is holding. You can see um, this giant who's holding the world on his shoulders, blood running down his chest. He's shrugging, right? This is the famous book by Anne Rand, Atlas Shrugged. It's because of the exact uh, sort of way he's shrugging his shoulders, trying desperately to keep this afloat with the last of his strength. The great news of Revelation 10 is that Jesus doesn't shrug. Jesus isn't buckling under the weight of the world. God is not surprised. He's not afraid, but he is sovereign over all things. And so when the fear and the anxiety cripple in, when we read the news and we see all these things that maybe get us down, man, we remember that Jesus holds every molecule together. We can have faith, not that God's going to give us an easy, breezy, perfect life, but that God is sovereign and that his presence dwells among us. His presence is with us in suffering. This is what Revelation 10 is all about, that Christ is sovereign overall. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the ways in which uh, this book is challenging us and teaching us and pointing us to your sovereign uh, power and the ways in which you've shown us mercy and forgiveness, ways in which you've given us hope when we lack hope. But I pray for those in this room who are wrestling with anxiety, who are dealing with fear, who are dealing with depression, who are dealing with whatever it is that the world maybe feels heavy right now, they feel burdened, Lord, I pray that we would lay those burdens at your feet, knowing that your yoke is easy, your burden is light. Jesus, we sit before you in awe of all that you do, your goodness, the ways you minister to us. We thank you for being a God who is sovereign, who holds all things together. It's for your beautiful name we pray. Amen.